Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode two of There's No I in Podcast, the podcast about teams, being in teams, running teams, and generally how to get the best out of teams. Um, I'm here, as always, with Sean Gallagher. Hello, Sean. Hey, Mark. How are we? Again, we're in quarantine in different parts of London, so I sound a little bit better than Sean. Not because of health, but because of a big microphone in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sean, you managed to get us an incredible uh, guest today. Uh, So we're going to be talking to uh, an old friend of yours, is it? Yes, yeah. So I've known um, Ashley for way over 10 years now, and uh, we met at college um, we met at college and then stayed in contact uh, when we went to uni uh, and then just uh, been been really good friends since. And, you know, we're both kind of in the same fields uh, with coaching. So we've always had stuff to discuss and kind of uh, chew on, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, Ashley Trodden is on today. He's a former Paralympic 2012 um, volleyball, sitting volleyball coach. Uh, he now works as an AP teacher in his first year. Uh, at uh, a school in Kuwait. So I'm really looking yeah, forward to, to a great speaking conversation, to him. Hopefully uh, enlighten ourselves as to what it takes to be a team leader and a team builder at uh, the highest level. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so without uh, wasting any more time, let's jump to our chat with Ashley Trodden. It's about time we said hello to... Uh, Ashley Trodden who's joining us today. Uh, Ashley, thank you for coming on. Oh, you're most welcome. Hello, Mark. Hello, Sean. How are we? All good, Ashley. Um, Ashley, for everyone that doesn't know you as well as Sean does, do you want to just give us give us a rundown of who you are and what you've been doing? Um, so I'm currently in the Middle East. I'm currently a teacher. Um, I'm in my first year of teaching, but my, my background is in volleyball, so the sport of, vo- of volleyball. And quite a deep, a deep history, really. I've been lucky enough to play for my country, um, and then I've gone on to to coach the Great Britain team at the Paralympics in 2012. From there, I've gone on to coaching at a junior academy for six years, and then on to teaching. So that's kind of a very brief history. I can go into more no, detail. Well, we, I'm sure, I'm sure we will. Um, that's a little bit of all areas of the team stuff that we like to talk about. So I think we could probably get into something quite deep today. I'm excited. Yeah, sounds really good, actually. I'm excited too. <laughs> me too. Me three, sorry. Yeah, take, me it, from, take it from here, Sean. Uh, hi, Ash. So firstly, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. And I know you said you're in the Middle East, but you're you're in Kuwait specifically, right? I am in Kuwait. Yeah, a bit of a weird country. Not maybe the um, the top choice for a country to be, to be teaching in, but so far so good. I'm really enjoying myself. Obviously, we're sat bang in the middle of uh, global health nonsense at the moment. How are they handling it over there? I'm actually surprisingly very happy. I feel very safe here. Um, I think the government's doing a fantastic job. Just a few things that they've put into place. They have closed the airports for four weeks. Okay. So no one in or out. So I'm, I'm stuck here, whether <laughs> I want to leave or not. And we are on a curfew every day. So our curfew means that at 5 p.m. we must be in our homes. Um, and if we are not, then we risk being deported or being in prison for three years. Okay, that's that's um, full on. But I guess some places, the choices that they make to try and limit the spread or the impact of this, you know, they're going to be more serious than others. Does that mean you are still teaching during the days? Yeah, so we're doing some, we're doing online teaching. We've been doing that for maybe around about five weeks. Oh, wow. um, I guess I'm, I'm quite fortunate because uh, as a PE teacher, there's only so much I can do online. Right. 
So in comparison to other academic teachers, um, I'm quite lucky, let's say. Tell, tell me about it, Ashley. Tell me about it. <laughs> it's, and it's an interesting part of uh, one of the places where we overlap. So Sean and I have both found that the practical and physical element of what we do and how we engage students in like groups and in physical activity, like we've had to completely reconsider well now that now that the setup's changed so there's there's only so far theory can go but that's we're trying to find ways to create practical somewhere i think most departments across the world are doing exactly the same so we're all in it together (laughs) (laughs) um ashley i'm gonna get into it um because there's lots to crack on with so first and foremost take us back to the paralympics uh 2012 and just kind of your involvement, your experience, the kind of structures in place, maybe the professional aspects that you saw within kind of Team GB and just the general feel of the whole tournament. Because, you know, there would have been lots of teams involved, obviously, at the Olympics, teams within other teams and small teams and coaching teams, you know, the teams out there actually competing. So a lot going on within something like a Paralympics. So, yeah, just quite a unique experience for you to be involved in. So if you could take us through that, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So for me, I still have huge memories of the Paralympics. It's still one of my favorite moments in my life so far. But as they would say, sometimes the journey is, is more important than the actual kind of success, if there is success at the end. Even though the Paralympics was, was amazing, it was a it was a kind of four or five year program. And I was lucky enough to be a full-time coach since 2010. And that was when we have when we had a number of resources, including a quite a large budget. Um, and we could we could run a full-time program every day of the week. Um, and we could host athletes. And at a time that was at Rihampton University for a number of years in preparation for that huge worldwide event. And in a way, I think maybe we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit later in disability sport or para sport. And especially at the time that we was in, we had to create athletes who maybe not necessarily had a sporting background. So we had to build a culture quite quickly okay. um, to de- develop them into a kind of competitive team at a major games. Um, so that was quite an experience for me as a as a their full time coach. When you say when you say they weren't athletes before, I mean, where we, where were you getting these guys from, and and kind of what backgrounds did they have? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So because we were obviously the host country, there was a number of disability days and awareness activities, um, and maybe some perhaps dropouts from other disability sports that are more popular. So, for example, athletics or basketball. Um, or wheelchair rugby. Um, so we were able to kind of grab those players or athletes um, and entice them with another sport. Um, but often the background was mixed. There was a, a few who kind of were in road traffic accidents, some who were born with um, maybe half a limb missing or not really developed very well. And I had, had to go for an amputation. We even had one, one gentleman who was in the army um, he was a bond disposal expert, um, and no, wow. he didn't get blown. He didn't get blown up by an IED. In fact, when he came back to England, he caught meningitis and lost his both of his legs that way. Oh my! So, so wow. yeah, and Crazy. as you can imagine, as you can imagine, really intense stories that sometimes had an impact oh. on the athletes themselves and maybe held them back sometimes. 
Um, we also had Martin Wright. So Martin Wright, Martine, so she's a female. She was in the um, the bombings in London, the terrorist attacks. Oh, yeah. And she lost, she lost her limbs in the terrorist attacks. And she found... Uh, an avenue she found a sport and she fell in love with it and it kind of gave her a new lease of life so a varied mix of individuals that have come into the game of sitting volleyball oftentimes the conversations that sean and i have about the differences between what we're trying to get out of people working in teams is the the focus we spoke about it last week the focus on performance and competition that sean has that i don't necessarily have to work towards in the same way and it sounds like there's something about these narratives that are getting used as part of the story of the the paralympic but also as part of the story of team members own inspiration sound like they play massively into this idea of what the purpose, what the outcome is, rather than just we need to win medals. It's also about identity. It felt like the Paralympics was a lot about visibility and making sure those narratives were told as part of the process of, of playing the sport. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you'll often hear this about Paralympics and Olympic Games, that when they go into that experience, it's quite a bubble and it's, it's often when that experience ends and they come out of it, it's quite depressing in a way. And it was it was quite tough for me as a coach. And I know from speaking to a number of players that they kind of felt that they, they lost that identity, mm. identity. They lost that feel as a team and that kind of, that focus in life. Did they compete together afterwards? Uh, it was difficult because although we met our target, we didn't medal. So we lost our resources in, term of, in terms of funding. Okay. Um, and after 2012, they went on to, for two more years, so the European champs after that, and then the world championships. Um, and now they've kind of, they're not really functioning on the world stage at the moment. Mm. So it's kind of dying a slow death based on, in my opinion, resources and recruitment. Um, so that's kind of the impact that that has. And really. I think lack of competition as well. If 2020 goes uh, for the Paralympics as well, I can imagine there's just not going to be opportunities to promote it. Yeah, absolutely. Domestically, it's, it was okay, but in terms of trying to get abroad and, t and competing abroad is, is fairly difficult. Um, and many of these athletes, they put aside their careers for three or four years because of this amazing experience that they were gonna go through. And when that ended, I think they had a reality check that actually, what are they going to achieve in their career and mm. what's really important in life. Ash, when, when you were speaking about kind of like the funding and like, uh, you know, losing resources once you didn't medal, four years before that, at the beginning of the process, I mean, in terms of goals, objectives that you would have been putting across to the team, what were those conversations like? Were they, you know, guys, we need to medal here, otherwise after this, things could fall away? Or was it very much more about guys, we're going to represent our countries and this is an op opportunity to be seen and to promote Paralympics or was it a bit more cutthroat? It w I would say it wasn't really cutthroat straight away, I think, because we were we were competing abroad and we knew that every time we competed abroad and because of our full-time programme, we were probably training the, the most amount of times across the whole planet because of our resources that we had and because we were a full-time programme. So we knew that over time we would, we would improve um, in the rankings on a world stage. So th those goals and expectations slowly changed over time. Um, and from UK sport, they didn't really give us a target from day one. That developed over time based on our rankings and successes. So it was more of a, a journey 
to, to initially begin with, and then it became a little bit more cutthroat towards as you got closer to the mm. to the Paralympic Games. And do you think that's the right way to do it? I mean, if you look out, I mean, the, the Paralympics and Olympics are two of the biggest kind of obviously global events that we can that we can stage. But if you just t- take that down a peg, if you look at maybe schools or you look at small grassroots clubs at any level, do you think it's good to kind of not have a goal? or maybe a big kind of objective that must be reached at the very beginning and kind of as you see how that team progresses, then you start to maybe put things in place. Or do you think that could be confusing? I think that's an interesting subject. I think I've I've kind of, my coaching career has gone from two huge spectrums. So I've gone from performance sport in Paralympics to then go into a school-based system, um, Mm. working with a charity. And the, the main aim of that charity was to, to work in a deprived school as a full-time sports coach and my sport was volleyball and to develop their life skills, to develop their confidence, their resilience, their ability mm. to plan and organize for life. And in that role, the performance aspect was a byproduct. Yeah. So the goals in terms of working in a school environment were very different and were more, were more athlete centered, I would say. How did that change your approach? My philosophy changed. Yeah, it absolutely did. And I think from working in a school environment, I felt I've developed the real philosophy inside me as opposed to just trying to achieve maybe sometimes unrealistic goals and successes that aren't really attainable. So that kind of internal value set and goal set rather than the external podium, I guess. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, for me, it's the holistic side of sport and developing those, those transferable life skills that can be taken away from sport into your social life, into your work life. That, yeah, I for think me, if I'm you're, like, particularly if you're thinking about something like volleyball, there aren't that many people in the entire world who are going to get the rewards of being a volleyball player at the highest level. Absolutely. <laughs> There's yeah. a benefit to what we do and what you do that, that, that goes wider, that can apply to to everybody. And I guess if it if that does change your approach, that's an interesting annual practice. That's an interesting thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'd be doing my my children at a time and injustice if I was very performance focused. Where, where yeah, does that, Sean. Where does that line Where does that line sit for you though, Ashley? Because obviously, if we're doing English lit or language, and we have a fairly capable student. We want them to achieve the highest grade they can, right? We want them to be achieving eights and nines. So just because they're in a school, we still want them to achieve eights and nines. So if we transfer that onto a football pitch, a volleyball court, etc., surely we are still trying to strive for the highest possible kind of result that that we can get. So where, so how have you struck that balance now within your philosophy? Yeah, so that's a really good point because. You will know, Sean, that through the years that I've been, or I was at that program at that school, there was a lot of byproduct in terms of performance. So there was a number of children that went on to represent a national team at cadet and junior level. Mm. And we was good enough to go and win a few national championships. So you're absolutely right. Trying to balance those two holistic approach and performance approach is quite challenging at times. And I think that's kind of down to you as a, as a coach and your discretion and your ability to be self-aware about where that line is. Yeah. And there is, no, there is no right answer or line to what we're talking about here. Very true. Yeah, no. Do you, true. from a philosophy point of view, uh, are you a person who says everyone can get an eight or a nine or everyone can go for a gold? Or do you coach some people knowing that it's about getting from a two to a five, you know, whatever the equivalent of that is? Yeah, I think, and to take that on a little bit further, I think, 
sometimes you're coaching the individual to to gain skills from that sport so for example there will be and we know this we will have students in our class who maybe aren't the most able but they can take away some stuff and apply into different environments so for me in a sports setting i would have children who maybe wouldn't be our our starters in a volleyball pitch or court Mm. but they can add value in terms of learning the rules and becoming an official Mm. or becoming a mentor and a coach to other children so i'm quite fond of developing roles that aren't just playing because sport and arts and drama and music are that powerful that they can have that impact. Yeah, people finding finding their place within within the form. There's a lot of space for allowing people access to the team or to the environment and to the principles that I can imagine as as a coach of uh disability sport and i've done a little bit not a massive amount a little bit of directing and teaching of learning disabled actors where you do have to reframe your expectations of what is going to likely come out of the work i have the good fortune in arts of 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 that being about me changing my perspective and going i'm looking at this work going why did what i think was good not coming out bother me so much or why did what they do get framed in my mind as not good work does that from a coaching and a team building point of view mean that you have to play worse sport or be happy playing less performance based goals or does it mean you have to change your understanding of what the sport is I think depending on your environment and kind of maybe your resources, you can cater for both. I was lucky enough to be maybe one of very few coaches who was in a full-time volleyball position mm. for a number of years. And it's, you, it's your struggle to find a full-time football coach in this country or in, back in England. But I was a full-time volleyball coach, which is often unheard of, with the ability to cater for both those needs, I feel, mm. and also have the mix in between, which was maybe perhaps quite blurred. I, th- I think Mark. I think Mark mentioned that. Um, Mark kind of touched on that last week when we were talking about the school kind of football team um, and kind of having that developmental squad if you can, that kind of development squad if you can. So I'm sure with your resources, you were able to have maybe two teams where one was going to try and see whether they could push into that main team, but the main focus was on, you know, the first team, so to speak. And if you do have the resources and the time and the coaches, then I think that's always a really strong approach. It's just not always realistic. It's just not always a realistic uh, thing. I get that totally. I had a, I had a question which you, you might be getting onto, but I... The question I had was where your kind of coaching and team building philosophies have come from. You said you played, so I'm assuming you've played under different types of coaches and on different types of teams. What what's the stuff you took? What's the stuff that that you you've decided is important in in bringing these teams together? Yeah, so I think for me, there's two strands here. I think for me, it's the sport itself. So volleyball is quite a team orientated sport it's a it's a rebound sport by nature so i can't hold on to the ball and do things by myself mm. i have to just touch it once and it goes to another player so by the nature of my sport that develops a team ethic or um, focus um, and if you've seen any volleyball games there's often a come together when we lose a point and when you when you win a point there's a lot of camaraderie and then i also think the other side of it is that 
coaches and I'm sure Sean would agree with this. Coaches are products of other coaches mm. and you, yeah, you take away what you want and you, you leave what you don't like. And that's how I've developed what I believe is um, an acceptable philosophy and way of building teams. So are, you an Ale- are you an Alex Ferguson? Are you a, are you a book thrower? Uh, I think as, as teachers, I think we often play the actor cards and can, can chuck it in when we need to. But I think deep down, I'm not, I think I'm, <laughs> Quite, he's I'm, not mark no. he's not trust me it's not it's not in his it's not really in his personality i i think i, I think i can uh i think i can uh say that yeah no he'd probably leave that to me to be fair <laughs> i think i do because i think if you think back to your childhood days and you you think about what kind of child you was i was very much an introvert and i was very scared of going doing any sort of coaching but i was pushed into coaching and I look back now and think that's developed me hugely in terms of the way I speak and communicate with people. Mm. Um, so I often want to try and give that back to children who, not just introverts, but who can develop beyond outside their comfort zones. Yeah, that's a really good point. The, you mentioned earlier, and I scribbled it down, something about kind of what happens when the, when the team ends. And I wanted to just check in on what you think your responsibility is there when the team is finished when the the when the competition's over and either the team stays together or the team has to go their separate ways do you still support in the same ways do you feel that that's part of your job and life now i think in in the school context that i was in i was lucky enough to pass teams across different age groups so they went from maybe say under 13s 15s 16s and 18s so that process was in place so i could stay with them for that whole journey um but once they kind of left then yeah i do feel on an individual basis that i did have some responsibility responsibility to stay in contact with them yeah. i think one of my one of my biggest achievements in my previous job that i was most proud of was that i used to every year create an alumni get together so at the end of the academic year at the end of june july we would come together and get all the old boys back just for one evening to play against each other and <laughs> with the young ones who were still at the school. So there was modeling happening and they could see that whole journey. Um, and to this day, that's one of my most memorable memories yeah. and one thing that I'm really proud of. Um, well, team is, about, team is about culture so much that the opportunities and the places to learn what it means to be part of that team you need to manufacture in that way as well. We've talked about it previously where we don't have students for long enough to to necessarily create the culture we want to create in that short space of time. But yeah. that sounds like a that sounds like a really valuable quite and quite a fun way of reminding people or letting people know one, what a team member looks like, two, that you don't stop being that team member because yeah. the environment changes if teams are more about values and what we're working towards together. I, I yeah. think, I, I think, sorry, Ash, I think the biggest, um, I think one of the biggest pluses of doing stuff like a kind of a, alumni events and stuff like that is, is that when you have a 15, 16 year old who, you know, doesn't think too many things are very cool or want to kind of participate yeah. in too much, to have to have a 17 18 19 year old come back to the school 
because of the love of the school and because of what they thought it gave them, I think that's a huge boost to a 15, 16 year old to say, oh, wow, like these guys are older than me. They've decided to come back. They put that effort in. When I do that, I want to be part of this alumni event. Um, and then the ball just rolls. You know, you spoke about modeling, Ash, and I think modeling is huge within a within any team. Um, you know, yes, cultures, you know, can take a long time to build and things like that. But I think modeling is almost kind of micro culture because it, it only takes maybe one or two people to model what the behaviors are for the rest of the group to understand it. And that's why you then start to have small leadership teams within within the, the full squad that the manager would choose and can do a lot of that kind of culture building and modeling for the rest of the team, for the manager himself or herself. So um, I think that's quite an important one there where you spoke about modeling, to be honest. Yeah, completely agree. I think if you're in if you're in an environment where you have that luxury, then that's got to be part of what you do on a daily basis. You've got to build that culture and enable people, people to look up and see beyond where they currently are. Um, I think we were quite lucky that we had people who graduated from school and used volleyball to get a scholarship in a university or they came back into the gym and they were wearing their, their England top. Mm. And for me, that's quite powerful. If you're a 13 year old child and you're seeing a, a six foot two boy who's gone through what you're currently going through and he's wearing an England top or a university top, then for me, that's quite powerful. Um, that's and that's your job that? done, Ash. That's your job done. Yeah. And I think as <laughs> part, of, part of my philosophy is that I know that I've done well when a child has left me and still carries on playing that sport. Yeah, I think, I think, Mark, you would probably say the same from a kind of theatre drama point of view. If you, if you have instilled a passion for drama into a student that then moves on and still has that passion and still has that interest, at least, for the subject again you've kind of done your job there are those there are those people that are going to leave you and they're going to they're going to aim to do it as best as they possibly can the england shirts and the going off to drama schools and then there's the ones who i'm happy enough to know that they've changed through the process that that something that was missing has been added and and ideally, not by me. Like one of the things I like to think about how I build teams or groups that work in teams is it's like creating a soup that, you know, all the flavors rub off on each other. It's not about me saying, always saying, this is how we behave. And I remember being called out by someone in one of our productions because I was going to cut a line from a scene. And I, I hadn't really considered it. And one of the other actors came up to me and said, you can't cut that line. And their reasoning was because it's really important to this other person that they get to say that line. And I hadn't spotted it. I hadn't noticed it. But that this person had their eyes out for the impact it was having on someone else was, Interesting, was the win for that day. That someone was doing that looking out for them that, where it didn't have to be me. It was about them thinking that other person was important because they were part of this group. That's where I feel like job done is when I can stop being the person looking out for each other and let that be them. Even if that, even if that's something yeah. as small as telling, telling me I've uh, made a bad call there. <laughs> no, that's really true. That's, that's a really powerful, uh, powerful point, I think. Um, Ashley, just I was thinking kind of about, say, your past kind of year, um, which has been quite a bit of a change for you. As we know, you're in Kuwait. But before that, you were working state school based in London. I think you were there for five years, longer? Uh, six in total. Six years. Yeah. Six, apologies, I'll do my research better next time. <laughs> 
uh, now you're in a an international school in Kuwait, and I just kind of want to know a little bit more about that transition, especially when we look at kind of staff induction, how you kind of felt going into the state environment, and kind of what that looked like on a day to day basis with colleagues, etc., and how that kind of looks now within the kind of private sector and in a completely different environment. Yeah, so my, my views are quite naive because in my lifetime I've been in two schools. So it's not my, my opinions are still developing over time and I've been in my current job since late August. Um, and part of that induction process was obviously moving abroad, which is quite a huge step. And at 31, that may be a bigger step than, than those that are kind of like 21, 22, because um, that's kind of defining my next few years perhaps um, and how I see my future. Um, but in terms of my current position, I'm really happy. I think the induction process has been very methodical. Um, and that's considering we are a very large school. So we are um, combined primary and secondary. So in total, there's over 4,000 students in our school. Wow. So you can imagine there's a few hundred staff. Um, and this year we had a high turnover with six, around 65 new members of staff <laughs> moving into to Kuwait this year. So yeah, that's been quite interesting for me. And the processes of the school in comparison to state schools is quite interesting also. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's huge. That's huge in terms of everything we've just been talking about for a sports team, but applied to this group of people you're now joining. Like, you've got to learn what it means to be a teacher in that place. And 65 people who knew that already have cleared out. <laughs> yeah, and we, we came on a plane together um, and we're currently living in close accommodation to each other. So whether we like it or not, we are in, in each other's shoes most of the time. Um, and that's quite challenging at times, but also quite rewarding as well. Do you think there's been like more of a camaraderie than you would have had, say, when you were... Um, in the state school, not because of the school or anything like that, but where your circumstances were, you weren't living with any teachers, you weren't living near any teachers, you went to work, came back from work on a day-to-day -day like most teachers would, would do. So do you think it does build a camaraderie in the setup you have now? Yeah, absolutely. Not just from purely kind of living alongside each other and working with each other, but the school has been really good in terms of putting on um, extracurricular activities. And when we first arrived, there was quite a few social events that were put on. Um, and even spending 12 hours on a plane with someone that you haven't met before kind of produces a number of relationships that you perhaps were maybe um, guarded against before getting on a plane. Yeah, not, not much social distancing on those planes. <laughs> no, not not right now there wouldn't be. We, <laughs> we can't leave anyway, so that's not going to happen. <laughs> Just going back to the culture building, Ash, sort of a lot across the board, sort of from Paralympics into the state school that you were with for, you know, a good six years and all the coaching you've done around that. Is there a couple of key values, traits that you want from... Yeah, the is there something that you have on every team, team? In order to make a good team, even if it's just two or three kind of bullet points that, you, that are must-haves. Um, yeah, so for me, I think I live by um, a consistent approach, like a consistent environment. So as a coach, if I'm not consistent with how I deliver sessions or my punctuality or how I communicate to the teams and the individuals, then I think my expectations are not great in terms of developing that team culture. Um, so I need to be consistent with my approach as a coach or a teacher. And then 
going on from that, I, for me and my brain, I've always had this philosophy of developing free thinkers as opposed to developing robots. And for me, that's kind of giving them the opportunity to ask questions and to answer their own questions and to problem solve. One thing I, I'm quite not against, but I just I'm not a fan of is that in a sporting environment, whether that's on the pitch or on the court or in the pool, when particularly a child is performing and they would either do something really well or something really, really poorly, they would look over to their parents or look over to their coach and expect them to give them the answers. And for me, that's quite robotic because they're not using their own initiative and their their own problem-solving skills to solve those issues within a sporting context. One of the outcomes of developing free thinkers is you might be developing rebels. How do you feel about getting challenged? Like when you're trying to create that consistency, if someone comes and challenges that, how do you handle that? Or do you welcome it? Yeah, it's a really good point. I think if you're if you're comfortable with your own ability as a coach or a teacher, then I think you would probably welcome that to a certain extent. Because in, in my sport in particular, I think rebels can often win or lose games and can often develop or um, break down cultures. So I think you need, you need them on your side, but that's quite difficult if, you, if they don't have the respect for you as a coach or teacher. Um, and I think that comes from your own ability and self-awareness and confidence um, to kind of portray that to that yeah, rebel. Yeah, if you've built the first one, if you've built that consistency, then what they're rebelling against, or rather what they're challenging, is probably the thing that needs to change. You know, it's the once you've got the mutual respect, then they're not picking a fight with you just because they don't like you. They don't like They're picking, <laughs> up, picking up on something that, yeah, hopefully, I think most coaches want the people that they coach to be better at the thing than they ever were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think if we take it one step further, I think in a, in a school setting, we, we know that as soon as we go into a classroom setting, within two minutes, we know who that rebel is going to be. And we kind of love them, right? Um, and we'd be stupid. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. And we'd, be stupid to, and we'd be stupid not to get them on our Sometimes. side. Sometimes we do. <laughs> you can make them stand outside the classroom for an hour if you want to, but that's not exactly. going to work long term, exactly. is it? No, so. not at all. I think, I think going back to... So that word kind of consistency that you both touched on, um, and Mark, I think you're completely right. It's so important to kind of set your stall out from the get-go in terms of consistency and what's expected because then it's easy to see who falls out of that. And if it is your star player who falls out of that kind of structure of consistency, then it's kind of, it's not easy, but it gives you a chance then to work one-on-one with that with that individual because you know the rest of the team are kind of on board. And then it's just a case of trying to work one-to-one with that individual um, a bit more so than you might have to with the other people. And it goes the same for the classroom. Once I've written so many times in reports, this person is a leader, whether they know it or not, they need to recognise that they take people with them for yeah. good or for bad. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And I think if you if you dig deeper into that personality, often, and maybe in, in my setting, which was a deprived school, you find out a deeper yeah. meaning to life with that individual. Um, and you find out their background and actually... They're a human at the end of the day. They're not. They're not, they're not really. They're not brought up with barriers in front of their face often enough. So you can slowly kind of dig a little bit, and you can work out how to pull their strings, 
and how to make them function within yeah. your environment if you want to. I'm, I'm a big We've fan. talked about visible, visible consistency, visible kindness as a, as a kind of a two-pronged principle of teaching those kids. I, I, think, I think if they sniff out early on that you don't actually want to find out about what is a little bit deeper uh, internally for them, if you maybe don't want to kind of understand because uh, it might be a bit difficult, then it's really hard to get them on board. If they can see very early on that you do want to understand and that you do care, more times than not, you're going to get them on board. It just may take a bit of time. Yeah, absolutely. Okie dokie. Um, Ashley, that's been really great. Amazing We've literally stuff. fired through so much so much stuff there. I'm just going to bullet point off those those last three points for you, kind of your philosophy and your kind of values. You might need to help me with the third one just to clarify, but... Definitely a consistent approach, developing free uh, thinkers. Or rebels. <laughs> and I think, yeah. And then I think the, the last one would be kind of being self-dependent to an extent where, you know, you're not looking over your shoulder to your coach to kind of give you the answers. Yeah, not being robotic with your thinking or asking for answers from outside people. Yeah, I would agree. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ashley. I really appreciate it. It's, it's crazy that we can do this kind of with two people in different uh, parts of London and then a third in Kuwait. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ashley, for joining us today. That was uh, super insightful. And it's amazing to hear from someone both who is doing what we do as kind of teachers and educators, but who's also uh, done this at the highest level. And it's kind of amazing for me to hear that there's similarities and consistencies between them both uh, that we can be working towards the highest performance and also be caring about how we're developing people. So thank you so much for coming coming on. Thanks, Mark. And, Thanks, Sean. Uh, yeah, all pleasure. the best with the new job and with keeping it real in Q8. Thank you so much. I need the help <laughs> at the moment with coronavirus Cheers. stay safe yeah, thanks so much cheers ashley take care mate thank See you. you bye so there we have it that was really really good um it was you know selfishly great to catch up with with a with a really good mate but i hope that the uh, audience will get a lot out of that uh out of that chat with some uh, incredible with insights and i said it to ashley at the end that it's really quite amazing how many similarities there are between his life as a teacher coach and his life as an Olympic coach. Yeah, I mean, insane. Um, really good to be able to have those comparisons to, to kind of work off and discuss. Uh, and, you know, maybe we, we, we get him on again for round two. Absolutely. I think next week, though, I might try and grab us some uh, artsy performance coaches uh, to talk from the other side and see whether those similarities and those differences apply across the arts as well very much looking forward to it brilliant so that'll be next next time on there's no i in podcast so from sean gallagher it's goodbye goodbye <laughs> and from me mark johnson uh with full radio exit it's goodbye goodbye <laughs>